America has 2.2 million people in prison. If just 1% is wrong, that's 22,000 people. That's a lot of people's lives destroyed. If the system want to take you out of society, they will do it. No matter what laws they have to break, saying that they are enforcing the laws, but they're breaking the law. Having to hear those people say that I was guilty of a crime that I did not commit, and then hear my family break down behind me and not be able to do anything about it, I can't describe the crushing weight that was. I'm not anti-police, I'm just anti-corruption. A lot of times we look and we see something happen to somebody and that's the first thing we say, that could never happen to me, but it can. This is Wrongful Conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Today's featured guest is Blaise Lobato, who only recently was freed from prison after serving over 16 years for a crime she didn't commit. July 1st, 2001, a homeless man named Duran Bailey was found brutally murdered. An 18-year-old was found guilty of that crime. Lobato was sentenced to 13 to 45 years after being found guilty of manslaughter in 2006. At the crime scene, there were cigarette butts, chewing gum, bloody shoe prints, fingerprints, pubic hair, and semen. Dozens of the items at the crime scene were never tested. The family of Lobato and her supporters maintain it was a botched police investigation in which DNA was never tested, leads were never followed, and more importantly, the family says the savage killer or killers are still out there. Blaze, welcome to the show. I'm sorry you're here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate that. You know, I'm sorry as well, but it is what it is. And with Blaze are two of her attorneys, Innocence Project staff attorneys, Jane Poocher and Adnan Sultan. Jane, Adnan, welcome. Hi. Thanks. Hi. Thank you for having us. Glad to have you here. So, Blaze, your story, even among all the crazy stories that we cover on this show has elements that we've never heard about. And I want to get right into it. Let's go back to your childhood. I mean, you were still a child pretty much when all this happened. Sure. You were still a teenager. But where, where did you grow up? How did you grow up? How was your life before the, before the storm hit? Well, I um, was born in Las Cruces, New Mexico when I was about two years old. My biological mother and my father came to Las Vegas to begin their new life together. And shortly thereafter, things didn't work out in their relationship. My mother took my father to court and gained custody of me when I was about five years old. She took me to California where I was sexually abused by her boyfriend for an extended period of time. And because of that abuse, my dad got me back without going through the courts. How old were you at that time? Six. Oy. Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ. So uh, from that point on, we lived in Las Vegas. You know, there were periods of feast and famine because of my parents' lifestyle. At times, my father sold drugs to support our family. And when that was the case, everything was wonderful. We had everything. And when it wasn't, you know, we were living on beans and rice for months at a time. So my childhood was, was 
you know, it was tough. It was tough. And, you know, when my family would get too far over the edge or later on when I started getting in trouble as a teenager, they would ship me to Texas to be with my grandparents. So it was kind of a back and forth game. At some point, I think I was about 10 or 11, my dad's drug abuse became so um, so bad that my stepmom gave him an ultimatum that either they leave or she would leave him. So we moved to a small town in northern Nevada called Panaca, and it was very difficult. It was a predominantly Mormon community, and we stood out. We were the outcasts, and it made it difficult for me. So when I hit junior high school, the only place that I found acceptance was with the bad crowd. And thus the drug abuse began. Right. So you ended up getting involved in drugs. But it's important to note that you were actually drug free at the time that the criminal justice system collapsed yes. inwards on you. Yes. Um, okay. So you you got involved with drugs. You were around drugs so mm-hmm. much it was probably almost inevitable. Right. When I was 17, I was raped by my best friend's father. And it was at that point that I decided never again. And so when I was assaulted in Las Vegas later and I escaped, I was so proud of myself for being able to defend myself and not be a victim yet again that I told everyone. And by the way, that's not a story you hear every day, right? You don't hear too many stories of rapes going wrong unless somebody walks in on them or mm-hmm. you know so there's a you know there, there's some outside interference right otherwise people get trapped and th- some of them consider themselves lucky just to survive right so Absolutely. how did you manage to escape this rape attempt where was it it was at the budget suites on boulder highway in las vegas um, and how did it come about i was out late partying and uh I was leaving my car and I got attacked in the parking lot and I had a knife on me and I fended off the attack with a knife. I don't know what I cut, if I cut him, you know, I I don't know the extent of his injuries, obviously, but I was able to get out from underneath him and get away, get in my car and drive. So he tried to rape you in the parking lot? In the parking lot. In the middle of the night? In the middle of the night. So you got away. For once. For once. Finally. And you're feeling sort of triumphant, so you go home and you tell people about it because, I mean, I'm, I'm excited to tell people about it right now. So I imagine right. it would have been something you would have been spreading the news. Yeah, I was, I was proud of myself. So things got a little crazy after that. I continued the drug use, and at some point I decided that that was not the life that I wanted to live. So I left Las Vegas and went back to Panaca to get clean And uh, there was a little bit of back and forth in there. I can't remember exactly the dates and times, but I know that I came back to Vegas for a very short period of time and called my dad and made him come get me so that I could leave again. And then actually on the night of the 8th was when I was going to go back to Vegas again and try again and again without success and ended up back in Panaca. So when the homicide detective showed up at my house, the first thing that they said to me was, We know what happened to you as a child because there was police reports and such. So they were able to find it in their system. And they used that as a tool to manipulate me. So how how did they use that as a tool to manipulate you? At that point, I hadn't worked through the trauma. So when they brought it up and they started asking questions, it immediately shut me down and made me emotional. And then they were like, we know you were attacked. They acted like they were on my side. They asked me three times. They questioned me three times before they ever recorded. 
and uh, they didn't give me my Miranda rights until after the fact, which, you know, we never made an issue of because it's neither here nor there. I mean, it should have been, maybe, but I don't have any proof <laughs> because I signed the Miranda card. So I can't say it was before or it was after, you know? When they started questioning you, did you know what they were questioning you about? No, I assumed that it was the situation I went through. And I thought, oh, I must have really, you know, it must have been a traumatic injury and it must have killed the guy. I had no idea they were talking about something else in another part of town at another time of the year. I had no idea. How crazy, right? So you're having two different conversations at the same time. And the police never, they never questioned me further to iron out the discrepancies. This is like surreal, right? They're actually questioning you about a crime that you don't even know they're, and you've got this other thing in your head. There must be like some very strange moments in that conversation. Her statement is about the attack from Budget Suites. That's what she's actually describing. Mm -hmm. And they had, I mean, we talked about this tunnel vision that they weren't willing to question like some of the things she said doesn't make sense. They Everything that was inconsistent, they just said, oh, she used drugs right, and discounted it. That's a catch-all. And, and Jane, talk about that. And I'd also like to get your just a, a summary of this gruesome crime that they decided that she must have been a suspect in, but they were questioning her about something that was completely foreign to her. Sure. So just to give a, a little bit of timeline, you know, this crime, this person, Duran Bailey was the name of the victim, was killed on July 8th. And on July 20th, the police drive the three hours, you know, from Las Vegas to Panaca, and basically bombard Blaze in her home. It's her, you know, her family home. Put her in a room, you know, tell her parents that they can't be in the room, close the doors, and they start interrogating her about what she thinks, as you just said, was something that happened two months earlier when you were attacked and these this man tried to rape you. Which was self-defense. Exactly. And, you know, when, when Blaze left the parking lot that night and drove off and got away from this man, the man was standing, you know, he was, he was, you know, I think gripping his groin area and in pain, you know, maybe there was a struggle, but he was alive and he was, you know, someone who was going to move on from this. The person who was a victim in this case that she ultimately gets prosecuted for was brutalized so badly. There is no question that there could be a confusion between the man that sexually assaulted her and this person who ends up being victimized. He was found with his penis completely severed five feet away from his body. Both of his eyes were beaten shut to the point that no one could even look inside them. He had, I think, something like 18 or 19 gashes all over his body. He had bled out you know, entirely in a garbage dump, and he was completely covered by garbage to the point where no one found him for probably a few hours. So the scene where this person is found is completely different than what Blaze describes to the police during that interrogation. And I think one of the most incredible things about this case is that interrogation is recorded. There is a recording of it. There's a transcription of that recording. And so we talk, you know, I'm sure you've talked in this podcast before about false confessions and the importance of recording statements. The crazy thing here is that statement was recorded. The police could review it. The prosecutors could review it. And the tunnel vision was so extreme that they didn't even see she's not talking. She can't be talking about this this assault, this person being killed. She's talking about something that happened two months before. What a, what a bizarre set of circumstances. And the reason that they came to, uh, what was the name of the town again? Panaka. Panaka, yeah, not a place I've ever heard of before. I guess yeah. most people haven't. But no. the reason they came there was because somebody had mentioned to somebody else about you having said to them or a friend about this assault that you survived by 
defending yourself. Mm -hmm. And they thought, well, if this guy was cut with a knife somewhere near the groin area, then you must be this crazy killer who goes around cutting men's penises off and throwing them on the street. I mean, this crime, from what it sounds like, I mean, people can't see you on the radio, but you're not a giant imposing figure. It sounds like whoever did this was probably a very strong Probably a man. Can't say that for sure. But Well, you know, it's interesting that you brought that up because one of their own experts said that the, the crime itself was inconsistent with a woman and that, in fact, because of the severity of the in- injuries, they wouldn't be surprised if there was more than one perpetrator. Well, and actually they overlooked what should have been an obvious clue. Anna, do you want to talk about that? It's, it's, it's absurd. There was a woman who had actually been attacked by Mr. Bailey Mm -hmm. a week or so before, reported it. Reported um, it. Told the police where they could find him, and they never did. So if they had, maybe he would still be alive. And I think what's most remarkable, I mean, aside from that, the day the police were there investigating and sort of at the scene, Mm -hmm. she lived like right behind the uh, dumpster area. There's like a apartment complex. She comes to the scene and speaks with the police officers and says, like, oh, is that Durant Bailey who's dead? And tells them about this past incident with him. I mean, it's right there for them to to look into. And there was more to that, too, right? There was. She also tells the police that she has a number of male friends who live kind of with her or near her in this apartment complex, and that she had told them about this attack, that she had been raped by Duran Bailey, and you know that they were upset by it. And they had actually, some of them apparently had had issues with Mr. Bailey in the past. So what appears at a crime scene, like a crime that is committed by at least one man with a weapon, if not several, I mean, it seems like a gang beating of sorts. With a lot of anger. With a lot of anger and a lot of power and a lot of blood, that somehow does not encourage the police to investigate these men and to look into their backgrounds and pursue them as suspects. Instead, the case is cold for two weeks, and when they get a phone call saying from Panaka saying, there's a girl up here talking about an injury with a penis, they drive up there, get what they consider to be a confession, and that's it. Do they never even talk to these three guys? No. I mean, they they claim that they made some cursory efforts to look into their background, but they never spoke with them. And there's no proof that they actually did that. Right. I mean, granted, maybe they didn't maybe they didn't treat it as a super high priority because he was a homeless guy. But this was a vicious, terrible, gruesome crime that Mm -hmm. it's not illogical to think that if someone has the capability or some people have the capability of doing that to this homeless man, he's probably not going to be the last victim. Absolutely. Anyone who knows me knows I wear glasses all the time. It's like a part of my face. And the thing is, it's so annoying going to a store and trying glasses on and going through that whole process. Warby Parker has solved the problem. I just participated in the home try-on program, and here's what happened. They sent me the glasses. I tried them on in my office, five different pairs. I showed them to my friends. I, you know, looking at other people, what do you think, this, that, the other thing. I look in the mirror. I picked the one that suited me the best, and then I sent back the other four. And here's the thing. The glasses, you're not going to believe this. They start at $95, including prescription lenses. I mean, that's a small fraction of what I'm used to paying. And the lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings, which is super important to me for obvious reasons. Anyway, the free home try-on program works like this. You order five pairs of glasses... 
and you try them on absolutely free for five days. You can show anyone and then there's no obligation to buy. The shipping is free. It includes a prepaid return shipping label. So head to warbyparker.com slash conviction to take the quiz that comes before and then order your free home try-on. And now, introducing Scout by Warby Parker. And Scout is for you people, for everyone that wears contact lenses. And here's the thing, they're comfortable, they're breathable, and they're affordable. They're daily contact lenses. They're made from a super moist material that resists drying for lasting hydration and comfort. It's everything you want from a contact lens. Order a trial pack that includes six days worth of contacts for only $5. Unreal. And then receive $5 off your next Warby Parker order. Learn more. Go to warbyparker.com slash conviction. That's warbyparker.com slash conviction. Try it today. In the fall of 2008, a sleepy Seattle suburb was shocked by a crime that no one could have expected. A local football star planned a daring bank robbery complete with decoys, disguises, and an outlandish getaway plan. He drew the whole thing up just like a game-winning play on the field and almost got away with it. The sneak follows a twisting story of a once great athlete who committed that crime and how the robbery forever changed the small town where it occurred. Be sure to subscribe to The Sneak on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And, and when you think about all of the, the harms that are compounded in this case, right, like not only was Blaze victimized two months before this and she was you know, managed to escape, but, you know, only by her own strength and determination, not because of help by the police. You then have this woman who's actually raped by Mr. Bailey, the person who ultimately is killed and the victim in this case. And the police never pursue him, you know, and never go after him or try to prosecute him against hers. And then he ends up falling victim to vigilante justice. Exactly, because that's what has to step in to fix it. So at no point did anybody in law enforcement get anything right. Is that fair to say? (laughs) That's fair to say. And meanwhile, you're in the center of this and you don't even know what the fuck is going on. No. And the more along the way, we found more and more and more things out. At the first trial, there were so many things that weren't available to us. We didn't know that there was pubic hairs found. We didn't know that there was a rape kit done and that none of it had been tested. We didn't know that he had cards in his pocket that indicate that he was a police informant. We didn't know these things. Wow, this is getting deeper and deeper. Right. So, I mean, there was plenty of avenues for them to pursue to investigate, and they did not. Wow, so strange. I mean, it just doesn't... And then they just decide to drive three hours when all they had to do was go next door. Instead of going next door, mm-hmm. they drove three hours and found you. Um, and it gets worse because you can clearly see the malice behind their actions. It's illustrated very well in the second trial when Detective Thousand lied on the stand claiming that his secretary did the investigation. We had no idea, but it turns out detectives don't have secretaries. So, who did the investigation? Nobody, I guess. Exactly, exactly. And we don't even know which investigation he's, which investigation, well, is it? <laughs> who it, knows? Well, there was none, so it doesn't really matter. He could have been right. referring to anything. Right, but at the second trial, we didn't have that information. There was no way for us, because when you're not a part of their system, you don't know how it works. 
you don't know what they have and what they don't have. So how do you defend yourself against that? I, I just it's it's so difficult for me to understand why they would want to victimize a victim, right? You're a victim. I mean, even you were a victim your whole life to this point. They knew that, right? It's just so, it's so weird to me how the morality breaks down so totally. I think one thing in this case is, you know, Blaze wasn't living in Las Vegas. She was living three hours north in a tiny town, which I think in the trial got painted as a place that's really different from where we live in Las Vegas. You know, listen, jury members, to what I'm saying. She's not one of us. She's from a different place. And she's a teenager. We're going to paint her as wild and drug addicted and different and the kind of person that we don't want in our community. So I think the prosecution did a really effective, evil job of painting her as this wild child who we just want to make sure we can punish and keep off our streets. And there was a lot of othering. And that's a huge part of, I think, what the criminal justice system does generally is to make people seem like pariahs when, you know, in fact, she was never investigated and they didn't look clearly into the case. But I think she was really hurt by the fact that she wasn't from Las Vegas and they knew about her drug issues at the time and were able to just use that as a character assassination as opposed to an actual prosecution. Do you think that the prosecutor knew that he was prosecuting an innocent woman? Absolutely. And in fact, I'm not the first person that he did it to. Their theory at trial was that Blaze left Panaka in the early morning hours to go find drugs. She went all the way to Las Vegas to do that, which was three hours away. Right, because there's nowhere in between Panaka and right. Vegas that you could get drugs, um, right? right? And that of all the places in Las Vegas to get drugs, she went to this behind the bank across the street from the Palms Hotel, which is like off the street. It didn't even exist. It didn't even exist. It was actually being built at the time. And that she met this man who she's never met. I mean, this was uncontroverted. They were strangers. She meets this guy, Mr. Bailey. And Mr. Bailey, in exchange for drugs, wanted a sexual favor. And that Blaze flipped out and cut his penis off and killed him, brutally murdered him, then hopped into her car and hightailed it back to Panaka three hours away. Was, that was her theory. And no one, no one in their office was like, hmm, does this make sense? Maybe this is not quite right. Maybe there should be some blood in the car, or there should be right. some other evidence of biological evidence. Or this oh. is just not how people behave. This is insane. Like, no one does this. And that maybe there is someone else who lives in Las Vegas mm-hmm. who committed this crime. And maybe that's a more likely explanation for what happened. I mean, that's what you do as a lawyer, right? You look at a case, you analyze the facts, and you think, what what makes sense, what doesn't make sense? And they're the prosecution. They don't have to go to trial on these cases. They chose to go to trial on these sets of facts. Like Their job is to do justice. They don't inherit cases like defense attorneys and have to defend someone and make best what they do. They choose the theory they go forward with. And the fact that no one, not, not, not a district attorney, not the district attorney, looked at this case and said, you know what, this doesn't make sense is really scary. Well, in addition to that, there, the original DA had a discussion with my attorney at the time, who was Phil Cohn, and he put a deal of three years on the table. And I was like, absolutely not. I'm not taking that. I didn't do it. At this point, you probably still thought- I believed in the justice system. I thought I everything would, would work out at trial. You know, I had no idea that the prosecution was gonna use smoke and mirrors on their own science and try and paint it to the jury that there was evidence that wasn't there. Like, for instance, when they did the luminol and phenolphthalein test on my car, they got a reaction. It was a false positive. They did the hemoglobin test, which is what actually determines if it's blood, and it was negative. But they painted it to the jury like there was something there when there was nothing there. So that's Just to put context, that's what you were talking about 
Jason, that there should be blood in her car. Right, right. They ran these tests that, or they had an expert to testify about these sorts of tests that confirmed the existence of blood. And as Blaze says, they came up negative or there was a false positive, but they inferred or they left this insinuation that she tried to clean up the blood with bleach mm. or something like that. Right, but then Luminol would show the bleach. I mean, you can't hide bleach, right? right. You can't have it both ways, right? You can't They do twist it. the science. Right. Which at some point when you look at the facts, you're like, nothing's adding up here. Maybe the conclusion is she didn't do it rather than, well... That doesn't fit our theory. That doesn't fit our narrative. No, they went with maybe we can convince the jury that she did do it, even though we know she didn't Mm -hmm. do it. It hurts me to think of the fact that so much of it was avoidable and so much of it was willful, but it happened. It's reality. It's your reality. And so you finally go to trial, right? Right. And I assume you were held in jail awaiting trial? I was in jail for several months, and then I was able to post bail and be on house arrest. So, okay, the period of time that went by, and finally it's time for the trial. Mm-hmm. And how long was your trial? Mm, the first trial was two weeks. So it was a long trial at taxpayer expense. So when the jury went out, how long did they deliberate for? I believe the first time was five hours. And now you had seen a lot of the dark sides of the justice system. Mm-hmm. Did you still believe that you would be declared innocent and freed? By that point, I was afraid because I had seen their maneuvers and I had seen the way that things were taking shape and I had seen, you know, my defense and I just, I felt like the odds were stacked against me. They were, for sure. You know. And then the jury comes back in and what what was that moment like? Well, you had such, so many terrible moments in your young life, but this this moment must have been just as devastating as it could be. I mean, there were several devastating moments, you know, The most horrific for me was actually when I first got arraigned and they handed me a sheet of paper that said they reserved the right to pursue the death penalty. That was a moment that I will never forget. I had a physical reaction where I felt so sick and I I think my heart stopped beating for a moment and I was just so overwhelmed. Like I could not believe that this was happening to me. And When the jury came back and found me guilty, it was a similar feeling. And I remember looking back because my family had been subpoenaed, so they weren't allowed to be in the courtroom with me. So I was completely alone. I looked back, he was finally able to be there, and I saw my dad and he was green. He was green and he was crying. And all I could do was just hold myself together because I didn't want to break down in front of them and make it even worse for them. You know, we hear that from others who've been through your situation yeah. as well. That it's, it's so amazing that you feel that you need to be strong for other people when the whole earth just opened up and swallowed you. Right. But that says a lot about your character. So then you're convicted and sentenced to? 40 to 100 years at 19 years old. So essentially now you've been given a life sentence and mm-hmm. off you go to prison. Right. And where were you in prison? At um, FMWCC in Las Vegas. And is that as bad as it sounds? Uh, it's it's not wonderful, <laughs> you know? It's not the Hilton? No, it's not the Ritz-Carlton. <laughs> How did you survive 16-plus uh, years in that situation? And if you can remember any happy moment, if there, if there was a happy moment in prison, and, and what was the worst moment while you were there? Oh, there were absolutely happy moments. I encountered some really beautiful people while I was in there, and I encountered some really horrible people. 
you know, it's like anywhere you go, there's good and there's bad. But there were some experiences that I had that were unique in that I had a jailhouse snitch that had testified against me in the first trial. I had never spoken to her. I didn't even know who she was when she got on the stand. But they they pulled phone records, and apparently she was somebody that had had taken advantage of my kindness and came to me at the phones and asked for a three-way call, and I gave it to her. But I had no idea who she was. So she read about me in the paper. She called the DA's office, and I presume that there was an exchange of information to help her testify. So she got to prison before me. I had to deal with seeing her everywhere. First thing she did was say that she was afraid for her life. So the warden pulled me into an office and told me that he was going to transfer me to another state. I begged him, literally begged him. I said, listen, I'm in appeals. I don't care about her. And he made it very clear. He said if I had any issues with her whatsoever, they would ship me so out of there so fast they would make my head spin. And at that time, I didn't want to be shipped out because I wanted to be able to see my family and my friends. So I had to see her everywhere and hear, you know, in a roundabout way, all the lies that she was telling to justify her actions because it was in the newspaper that she was a snitch. And so she was telling everybody that she was my friend from the streets and that I had taken her to the crime scene and all this crazy shit to justify her actions to everyone else. Wow. And can we talk for a minute about jailhouse snitches and how pernicious this whole practice is? Oh, yeah. It's so easy for them. It's so easy for them to uh, seize an opportunity to try and get less time. You know, they lie, they cheat, they steal. It doesn't matter. They don't have morals or ethics. They'll do whatever it takes not to go to prison or to be there for less time. It's so weird. Everybody knows you can't bribe a witness, right? Anybody who watches TV, anyone who's been to eighth grade knows you can't bribe a witness, but the government can, and they can right. bribe them with the best thing you can imagine, which is get out of jail free cards. Right. And how that can be used in court is nuts when you have such an obvious motive to lie it's just, right but it happens a lot of it happened to you and then you had to live with this woman so yeah. jesus i mean that's that ain't great and it's not at all surprising that you know in about 17 percent of post-conviction dna exonerations snitch testimony played a role that's a huge amount you know and and there are probably many more cases than that but you know in terms of cases where dna testing has led to an exoneration about 17 percent of those have involved snitch testimony in one way or another Is there something that is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, then BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialists in issues including depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And remember, anything you share is confidential. Now you can get help on your own schedule, at your own pace, and your own time. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions and chat, text with your therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor also, remember this, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And for Wrongful Conviction listeners, you can get 10% off your first month with discount code WRONGFUL. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com wrongful. That's betterhelp.com slash wrongful. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor that you'll love. Betterhelp.com 
slash wrongful. You went through a second trial. Let's yes, just talk I did. about that for a minute. And if you can explain the chronology of this, right? So, because sure. you had multiple trials. I did. And I won my first appeal based on the perjury of the jailhouse snitch because we were able to prove that she perjured her testimony. And so I was granted an appeal, granted a new trial based on those grounds and sent back for a retrial. And basically they said any other issues that we had stated we could remedy and retrial. However, we went back to the same judge and the same prosecutors and they pulled the same shit. So we were in the same boat. In addition to that, Michelle had mortgaged her house and second mortgage actually to finance Tony Sarah out of California to represent me. Unfortunately, he got indicted for tax evasion. And so we were given two less experienced attorneys from his office. And they were gonna work in conjunction with the special public defender's office in order to work under his license and to help finance experts and such. It was a rough, rough, rough time because everything that that my female attorneys out of California suggested or, or tried to strive for in regards to expert testimony was blocked by the special public defender because he didn't want to finance them. So wait, so your own attorney mm-hmm. blocked? Yeah, he was like, oh, we don't need that. We don't need that. We'll be fine. Everything the girl suggested, he shut it down. Oh. I don't know if it's clear. Tony Sarah is a legendary defense attorney out from California, mm-hmm. who I guess has issues paying taxes and didn't pay his taxes around the time they hired him and was indicted for tax fraud. But I guess let um, two of his younger associates mm-hmm. continue to work on Blaze's case. Mm-hmm. And those were, the, I guess, the two female lawyers that Blaze yes. was referring to. Well, it sounds like they were trying to do the right thing as well. And they then- were, but, but at the same time, like he was the more experienced attorney and they deferred to his judgment. So... It was it was a tough situation. I begged him to get all of all of the evidence tested for DNA. And he said it wasn't until that point that he even believed in my innocence. Mm. And they still to this day have never tested all of the evidence. So you survived somehow this I mean what was really half of, almost half of your life mm-hmm. in prison. I mean you were 18 when you were yes. arrested, right? Yes. And you were in for 16 plus years and half of your life, yeah. you're in maximum security prison. And then what happened? How did you find, well, how did you find the strength to survive is one question. The second question is, how did you get in contact with the lawyers who ultimately freed you? And who was your angel in all this whole situation? Well, Michelle Ravel is my angel. She has become my mom. She has been my staunchest supporter and my biggest advocate. She has fought for me tirelessly. She has put in so many hours of time and energy and given me so much love. How did you find, how did you first get in contact with her? Um, Actually, I dated her son at one point before all of this happened. And I continued the relationship through my stints of freedom in between my trials. When you were on house arrest and stuff? When I was on house arrest and then later when I was on bail for my second trial. 
but even still, you know, one would sort of assume that once you get sent away, those things fade, right? You hear and they do. I mean... But she didn't fade. She did not fade. If anything, the opposite, fade. right? She right. sounds like she, like, like a lot of us, she got mad yep. and decided to do something about it. Yep. And she's here in the studio today. Yeah. And maybe we'll have a, a little cameo appearance from her All right. in a little while. But So she became your rock. Yes. And I, I love talking about that because it's inspiring and she de- deserves a ton of credit for that uh, yes. um, and uh, and I see how emotionally you get talking about her but it's important also to talk about it because of the fact that our listeners out there need to know that you can make a difference right yes. even though a lot of people say well what can I do I don't know what to do you can make a difference just be there listen spread the word I mean everybody it seems like you know there's probably you know social scientists estimate there's probably a hundred thousand innocent people in prison in America so. and Michelle's not just I mean she's been like sort of an emotional support for Blaze, but she's also done a lot of advocacy on behalf of Blaze during the sort of the appeals process. You know, she's been talking about how we're sort of talking about people listen, they don't know what to do, and I think she was in a similar position. And she started off, put a website together about Blaze's case and what was going on with Blaze, and drummed up some support with that. And as social media's advanced with Facebook, she's got a Facebook page with about Blaze's case and has garnered a lot of support. Unfortunately, like, you know, after convictions and trials happen, cases and people fade away Mm -hmm. and people forget. And I think Michelle, to her credit, really wouldn't let anyone forget about Blaze. No. She herself And she's come up with all kinds of clever ideas. She had t-shirts made with my face on it that said, what if this was your daughter? Mm. To spread the word. She did stickers. Any, Any little idea that she thought might help ran with it and that's again if you're listening you know these are things you can do i mean just talk about it do you think without michelle's help you would have got, ever gotten out absolutely not i would have served every day of my sentence probably the original sentence so there you go so then somehow or other the innocence project got a hold of your case yes the innocence project first got involved offering to pay to have all of the items tested at any lab that nevada chose and Nevada repeatedly said no. Despite petitions, despite, you know, whatever, they, they said no, 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 they wouldn't do it. What year was this? Mm, I think it was around 2010 when the first consulting, and there was some back and forth over a couple of years. And when the Innocence Project, when we came on as a team, so with Vanessa Potkin, the director of post-conviction litigation, myself and Adnan, came on in full force was after the Nevada Supreme Court remanded Blaze's case for an evidentiary hearing having to do with issues around time of death and entomology, which we'll, I'm sure, get into more in a minute. But so even though the Innocence Project had come on to consult and agreed to pay for some testing to try to get more DNA testing done, there had been a lot of roadblocks on that path. And so we ultimately were able to exonerate her, not through DNA testing, but through this evidentiary hearing that we had about six months ago at this point. Can I just make one point? Because I do think, you know, Blaze's comments about her public defender not willing to test items for budgetary reasons, that's certainly played out to be the wrong choice. But I do think it highlights issues of public defenders not being funded properly to sort of properly work up cases all over the country where I think there is a need to sort of even out the playing field so that people can be properly defended who don't have the funds to get 
the best lawyers out there. Sure, because if we are the public, right? Everyone is the public. I mean, it sounds like I think there's a little disconnect when people don't realize that this could actually be you. And if these changes aren't made and you end up in that situation, you could be the next Blaze Lovato. And an additional issue, too, that I, th- I think played out in Blaze's case as well is, you know, DNA testing is not always going to be the thing that can prove someone's innocence. In most cases, it isn't. You know, there are other avenues that need to be pursued. And so I think because of the power of these post-conviction DNA exonerations and, and the you know, age of innocence that we're living in, I think there's sometimes a false idea that that's always going to be able to solve it. And there are people who are really trying to get back into court to fight their convictions and just don't have a way to do that because DNA either didn't play a role in their case or they did some testing and it didn't lead to you know clear results that could lead to an exoneration. And so it's really because the Nevada Supreme Court took her habeas petition very seriously and found issues that you know merited a post-conviction evidentiary hearing that we're here today. And the, those issues you know, didn't have to do with DNA in this case, which is a unique thing for our project. Yes. Second trial, you end up with the same people from the first trial, which also strikes me as a Mm, not perfect, um, you know, because they're coming in with a bias. Yeah. I mean, not great. And so the results are somewhat predictable. Mm-hmm. You know, you now have the additional problem, like you said, of a public defender who's almost, and we've heard this story, unfortunately, too many times, a public defender who's not acting in your best interest. In this right. case, for budgetary reasons, what in the fuck budgetary reasons when you're talking about somebody's life? I mean, it's just like, uh, yeah, I don't know. That's not okay either. And, and just for context, I mean, this crime happened in 2001, so we're now talking 2010, and now here we are in 2018. Ultimately, who reached out to the Innocence Project? What was that like when you, how did you find out that we were coming to the rescue? Well, that's all thanks to Michelle Ravel again, my mom. She reached out to them. I found out, I think I found out on my birthday. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah. How did you find out? Did you did Michelle tell you? Did you over get a letter phone. over the phone from Michelle? Yep. So Michelle got the letter. Yep. And then what was your reaction? Cautiously optimistic. <laughs> you know, at that point, I couldn't afford to to um, get my hopes too high because I still had to survive on the inside. Right. What year was that? Twenty sixteen. Sixteen. So actually, this case moves quickly by our standards yeah. mm-hmm. because it usually takes longer. And you've been out now for how long? 63 days. 63 days. Wow. Amazing. So you got your day in court mm-hmm. again. Right. Third time around. Third time's a charm. Right. Although this time it was for an evidentiary hearing, not a trial. I want to capture that moment. Well, I finally got a different judge. And I only had one of my original prosecutors to deal with. So I was feeling optimistic about those two things off top. Not to mention that I had the dream team. So as things were going and I saw the response of the judge and I listened to all the testimony from the experts and I compared both sides, I felt really good. But I was so scared to get my hopes up because I know how the system works, or at least had worked for me up until that point, and I was terrified to get too excited about it because I didn't want to be devastated, you know? And from your perspective, Jane, I know you were both in the courtroom? Yes. Yes. And what was your feeling? Obviously, it's always difficult. I mean, if you're feeling optimistic, you're not going to share that with 
ways because for the same reasons we're talking about, right? But did you did you know you had a winning hand? I think we went in there confident, knowing that we were very well prepared, that we had some incredible experts on our side, people who were really smart scientists who had looked at her case and had objectively determined individually on their own that there is no way that Blaise Lovato could have committed this crime based on objective signs of the the victim's body. So the issue at the evidentiary hearing had to do with time of death, which was a crucial issue at both of her trials because Blaze had very solid alibi evidence putting her in Panaca for almost the entire day of July 8th, right? Duran Bailey's body is found around 10.08 p.m. on July 8th. Almost that whole day, up until the early morning of July 8th, Blaze had alibi evidence putting her three hours away in Panaca. And so the state's theory had been that she had committed this crime in the very early morning hours of July 8th, sometime around 1 or 2 in the morning, because that's the only way it could have happened, because they conceded that she was with family and friends three hours away the rest of the day. And so our experts looked at photographs and the autopsy report and many other reports related to the case and determined based on how this body had decomposed and also the total lack of bug activity on the body, the fact that there were no insects, no larvae whatsoever, that this person could have only been dead for probably a few hours at most, if not less. And the reason that was so significant is because that means factually, objectively, Blaze could not have committed this crime. Something she always knew, something we knew because we believed in her innocence, but this showed scientifically that she couldn't have done this. So our our hearing had to do with putting on a forensic pathologist, a man named Dr. Andrew Baker, and three forensic entomologists, Dr. Gail Anderson, Dr. Robert Kimsey, and Dr. Jeffrey Tomberlin, to talk about, first of all, how bodies decompose and how this was a body that couldn't have been at this crime scene for that long. And that also how insects are attracted to decomposing bodies. And the fact that there was no bug activity on this person means he couldn't have been there for very long. And we know bugs like dumpsters too, right? (laughs) Yes. Not to mention that it was July in Vegas. Right. Which changes the decomposition process because of the temperature. And attracts more bugs. Right. And, And the body was so brutally beaten that it was sort of ripe for insect activity because there was blood, mm-hmm. lots of cuts. That's the sort of thing that insects are attracted to. And so just to add on to what Janet said, I, the, I think the other thing that gave us confidence during the hearing was, and Blaze sort of alluded to this mm-hmm. about the judge, was that the judge was sort of asking the right questions and picking mm-hmm. up on the right issues and seemed to be getting what we were sort of arguing and presenting, which I think made us you know, feel that, okay, she's... She's thinking about this the way we are thinking about it, and that's a, you know, that's a good sign. And so the moment comes, the arguments are done. You know now that you've presented a very strong case with, as you said, the dream team. Mm-hmm. And now you're going through this again, the, the moment, right? And what was that moment like? It's really terrible to have your life hanging in the balance and to have to wait for the answer and not know which way it's gonna go. So this was a hearing in front of a judge, but how did that work? So the arguments were finished, prosecutor says whatever they said, you guys said whatever you said, and then how long did you have to wait for the judge to rule? So so the timeline was that we had the hearing middle of October, we submitted post-hearing briefs to sort of make our arguments in writing that we submitted November 1st, I think was the deadline. And then the judge, came down with a decision granting us a new trial that saying that we won the hearing mm-hmm. right 
before Christmas. So right before Christmas, we knew that we were going to have a new trial and that the ball was sort of in the prosecutor's court, whether or not they actually wanted to have a third trial on this or whether or not they were going to dismiss the charges. Same prosecutor? Yes. Same office. And I think something that's particularly important to know here is, you know, we got the email decision from the judge saying that the charges, you know, that we should be granted a new trial, that they found that it was ineffective assistance of counsel not to call forensic entomologists and pathologists to prove what the time of death would have been in this case. We couldn't reach our client at the prison. You know, it took us several days to be able to communicate this really exciting news to her that her conviction had been, had been vacated and she'd be granted a new trial. It's not because people at the prison couldn't have gotten the message to her. It's not because she was hard to reach. They know where she is at all times. It's because nobody wanted to communicate that to her. And so it took probably about 48 hours before we could actually have a conversation with her. And this is right around the holidays. Obviously, we want to get her this good news. So just the inhumanity that she had to deal with on a daily basis and the anxiety of not knowing what's going to happen with her life is incredible. Do you know how I found out that the charges had been dismissed? No, I would love to know. An officer put a newspaper clipping in my window, woke me up, and I couldn't even, like, comprehend what it said. I had to illegally obtain a newspaper later on in the day to find out my own fate because they wouldn't allow my attorneys to talk to me. And that's really what we were like really scared of happening. Like we wanted to deliver the news to her. We didn't want people gossiping or telling her in prison about it. So, you know. Yeah, and I guess it was on the news, but the cable was out. So (laughs) I didn't see it. You're in like a media blackout. Yeah. Oh, it's Unbelievable. And a lawyer blackout. It just doesn't make any sense. But you did find out. I did find out. And then? And then it took three or four more days for me to be released. They came with the proper documents to the prison, and the warden said no. 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 Not letting her out. In order for her to be released from the prison, they had to get a certified copy directly delivered from the court. And because this is around the holidays, things had gotten slowed down a little bit. And so even though we had the certified copies in our hands as as lawyers, as members of the bar, walking up to the warden, they wouldn't accept it from us because it hadn't yet gotten received by FedEx from the court. So this is just, again, another example of the insanity that you have to deal with when you're imprisoned and waiting for your fate to be decided. They just felt like they hadn't fucked you over enough yet, maybe? Nope. They had to get a little... They had to little... get their last little lugs in. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? Here you are. Here I am. So, he who laughs. In this case, she who laughs. You laughs, know what? Laughs, and laughs. I still have a smile on my face, so it's all right. You do, and I'm going to tell you that I was um, very taken by this whole scenario and very interested in finding out what had happened because it just struck me as such an outrageous set of circumstances and also because you came across in the media that did exist as somebody who was you just really want to root for I mean you just have a very lovely demeanor oh, thank and you. you know your spirit kind of comes through even in a one-dimensional format like in the in the uh, newspaper and I think something so remarkable about Blaze is just her concern and her care for others not not only now that she's out but when she was in I mean you talked about you know other people you were concerned about in there heck you always asked us on the phone how we were doing and really meant it and wanted to you know make sure we were okay as people that were connected to you but I think the the drive that you've seemed to have since getting out to really make changes and to not forget about the people you left behind is so inspirational and, and hopefully inspires people listening to get involved in those cases too. 
I think it's really important for people to um, know what's going on inside because it's not right. It's inhumane and people are being abused inside the system, not just by wrongful convictions, but just the whole process of incarceration. We have a tradition here at wrongful conviction, which is that at the end of each episode, I like to just turn the microphone over to you and you and you in reverse order and just share any closing thoughts. But before we do that, I want to do something we've never done before, which Mm -hmm. is I'd like to bring someone in the studio out here. So today, Blaze, we have with us making a special guest appearance, someone who is uh, probably the most important person in your life. Is that fair to say? It's fair to say she's one of the most important people in my life. You know, I'm, I'm... I'm blessed because I have a whole tribe of people that love me and support me. Well, your tribe just got bigger today. Um, I want to have you introduce Michelle. All right. Hello, world. I'd like to introduce you to my mom, also known as Michelle Ravel. Well, thank you, sweetheart. People who are listening to this podcast are obviously interested in things like wrongful conviction and, and how this all takes place. I encourage anyone who has one present itself in their life to not run away, to take advantage of the opportunity of assisting someone who has no voice to have a voice. And I would also like to, a special request of all the journalists I know, pick one case, research it, highlight it, get it out there in the world and help free these innocent people. There are too many people in prison who don't belong there. Well, Michelle, I want to thank you for being here and what you've done is extraordinary. It's just an amazing example of uh, citizen activism, which is, you know, we can't do without it. You literally saved Blaze's life. And I know she wouldn't be here without you. And I see how she gets talking about you and that says all I need to know. So I'm glad you're here. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. And now I'm going to give you both a big hug, unless you have something else you want to say. Perfect. Perfect. (laughs) Adnan, any closing thoughts to share with the audience? Anything at all? I mean, I just think, I mean, Blaze has been here for about a couple of days now. It's just so amazing to see her out and just enjoying life. Um, And her spirit is just really inspiring. I, I said this, I think, last night. Whatever it is. She has it like that sort of she brings you in and um, I think that's why people really bond with blaze um, because she has that you love your job. Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, in some ways, we wish we wish we could all be out of business. Mm-hmm. Like, the best thing that could possibly happen would be for the Innocence Project to be closed because all these people go home, but we know that's not realistic. But in the meantime, we love our job, and it's because of people like you. So, Jane. Yes. I'm excited for you, Blaze, to go to the conference, the Innocence Network conference, in a couple of weeks and meet some of your brothers and sisters out there because I know that as much as we can all talk about this and celebrate you and stand with you, we don't understand what's happened. And I think that you just have such incredible strength and character, and I hope that you're able to let your guard down a little bit in a couple of weeks with those folks and really feel some healing because you deserve that in a big way. Thank you. And the Innocence Network Conference, just to put some context, is a conference that we actually started uh, 11 years ago, I think, in New York. And it's a, it's a conference in which we bring together 
well, it was originally dozens. Now it's hundreds of exonerees mm-hmm. for a weekend of healing and hope and strength and just um, it, it's it's a it's an incredible thing to be a part of. The amount of energy, positive energy that's generated, and the number of dedicated people, activists, social workers, lawyers. There's so many people there who care that it's 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 really cathartic experience and so i hope you'll have a great experience there. i know you will okay so now we're going to turn it over to you you can talk okay. about anything you want the microphone is yours i just want to say how happy i am to be free and how grateful and thankful i am to all the people who have facilitated that and i want to tell people in the world that it's really important to get involved and to try to make a difference because we really, really need to change our judicial system. It's important for everyone because this could happen to anyone. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. This episode has been a profound experience for me, and I hope it has been for you out there in the audience. So once again, I want to thank our distinguished guests, Innocence Project attorneys Adnan Sultan, Jane Poocher, and of course, you, well, you, you radiant little thing that you are, <laughs> Blaze Lobato, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having story. me. Thank you. Thank you. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcast. It really helps. And you know, I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and in so doing, helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. It's easy. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I want to thank our amazing producers, engineers, and editors, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, at Wrongful Conviction, and on Facebook, at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number 1 and PRX. I'm excited to tell you about a new serialized podcast called American Jihadi. If you're into investigative journalism, if you're a news junkie, or if you love great nonfiction storytelling, it's a must listen. American Jihadi tells the incredible true story of the unbelievable relationship between journalist Christoph Putzel and Omar Hamami. Throughout the eight-episode series, Christoph recounts his investigation into the life of Omar, an American-born U.S. citizen who became leader of the Somali Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab, landing him on the list of the FBI's most wanted terrorists. From Omar's hometown in Alabama to war-torn Somalia, Christoph seeks to get answers. Why would a Southern Baptist turn to terrorism? And how close should a journalist get to his source? Listen to American Jihadi, out now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.